There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. The rate that's a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello, and welcome to Climactic, the flagship program of the Climactic Network. I'm Mark, and I won't be your host today because we have something very special for you. A program that's been a labor of love for months by a very talented woman. Gretchen Miller is a past guest, and you can find a link to her episode in the show notes to this episode. But she's also been an audio storyteller, producer, and journalist for 20 years. Her work has appeared on the BBC and across Radio National and ABC. It's our extremely good fortune that she's also a friend of the show. So today, on completion of her latest remarkable work, The Rescue Project, in collaboration with Landcare, she's allowed us to share it with you here and now. This is a feature-length documentary she created on one remarkable area in New South Wales. It's flora and fauna and amazing people working to protect and rescue it. Coming throughout this week, we'll also have three shorter supplementary featurettes from this project, releasing on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. Our deepest thanks to Gretchen for allowing us here at Climactic to share your work. And in being able to do this, we're able to show you, our listeners, just what it is we're looking to do, especially on this show. We're here to collaborate with storytellers trying to make sense of these climactic, interesting times we live in. And if you've got a story to tell of your own or your local community, and you'd like to work with us to share it, please just reach out to hello at climactic.fm. Thank you. And thanks again to Gretchen for letting us bring you her remarkable work right now. Enjoy. When you think about a tree kangaroo, what do you imagine? This is the sound of a small kangaroo that climbs trees. She's fluffy and looks like an impossibly cute stuffed toy. And she's going about her daily business, eating fresh new leaves, waddling across a branch, defending her territory and sniffing at a strange microphone. So their front arms are musclier than a normal kangaroo. And normal kangaroos have got very tiny little skinny arms. I call them Tyrannosaurus rex arms. And these guys have big muscly arms with huge claws. And their back feet are a lot shorter than a normal kangaroo and fatter and padded. And then their long tail is for balance. They're absolutely a kangaroo in every way. It's just that they have adapted to climb trees. The woman who arguably loves tree kangaroos most in the world, the director of the Tree Roo Rescue and Conservation Centre, Dr Karen Coombs, can often be found with a roo snuggled round her neck. They need to be with you and they need to have that body touch and they're getting your heartbeat and your warmth and they can just feel safe. And tree kangaroos yearn for that all the time. Right now, 
Part of Karen's work is to do the grisly job of sending eye and brain samples to vet scientists in New South Wales and Victoria, seeking their help to understand a concerning medical mystery. But more on that later in the program. I'm Gretchen Miller, and I've been working with Landcare Australia and the University of New South Wales to bring you The Rescue Project, a storytelling website and a podcast about what it means to care for your home ground. Whether your finger's deep in the dirt, replanting one tree at a time, just picking up some rubbish in your favourite park or bushland, or looking into the eyes of a wild creature you're keeping alive... You're engaging in a kind act of rescue. And we asked you to tell us in what ways this work restores or rescues you. In this longer special episode, we're in the wet tropics on the Atherton Tablelands in far north Queensland. This is the wettest part of the driest continent on Earth, a tiny patch of emerald green. It's a World Heritage Area and we're walking through the landscape with people living here and collaborating on interconnected projects, looking after sick and injured tree kangaroos whose fragmented habitat needs reconnecting. They're finding seeds for propagation, they're replanting great tracts of rainforest and they're protecting the whole from a tiny but deadly invader, the yellow crazy ant. So just where we are now, we're looking over this beautiful swamp, over the rolling green hills of the pasture lands, to the far mountains, to Mount Bartlefrere or Turichillum, and then over those to the coast and the Great Barrier Reef through to thousands of kilometres of Pacific Ocean. And that's where the forest is breathing that fresh air in and and then breathing it out for us and you feel it as soon as you get halfway up the mountain to the tablelands you just go and we get to sit here in this magnificence and it's so fresh and so beautiful and so cool and it's home That's Rhonda Sorensen setting the scene for us. She's a microbiologist, a long-time resident of the Tablelands and as the wet tropics representative for the Queensland water and land carers, she knows everyone. And when you look at this landscape where we're a World Heritage Rainforest area and the biodiversity on top of the ground is, well, we like to quote that there's more tree species in one hectare of this rainforest than there is in the whole of Northern Europe and Northern America put together. And then the next hectare is different. And that only takes in the tree species. If you start going down to the understory species and the ferns and then the fungi and then under the soil, imagine the biodiversity that we have. It's just immense. And most of it has not yet been documented. And just two kilometres west from here, it starts turning into the Marby forest, into the, the more open forest. And then 10 kilometres from there, you're, you're into almost the outback. Rhonda's brought me to the Tree Roo Rescue Centre. She and Karen and I all walk along a track worn from many trips a day between Karen's home and the tree kangaroo enclosures. 
The Roos, on release, have worn their own paths too, up and out through a replanted zone, into the remnant forest and beyond. Actually, nowhere's out of bounds for the Roos. I've been working with them for 20 years, intimately. So I've had them sleeping with me, spending time in, my, in the house with me, and I get to know their personalities. And so of a morning, we bring them up into an enclosure for them to play around all day, and they get to climb and be silly and, and socialise. But when we first started um, building enclosures, we're only getting a couple in a year, but now we're getting anything up to a dozen. So that's quite a close relationship you have with this tree kangaroo. Slightly. <laughs> so the kangaroo is kind of nestled and snuggled into you and has both paws around your neck and is sniffing and is... She's sniffing you. So this is Lily. Lily's one of our babies. You right? You're going to be a sock today. You're not normally nervous around people. Hello, Lily. She'd been attacked by a dog, so she was down on the ground. She should have still been with her mother. And at that age, she was about 18 months old, she would have been following mum. It's all right, baby. So she went through a lot of problems with you, didn't we? You had a bone infection in your foot. Karen's work on the ground, caring for and releasing more than 150 tree kangaroos over 20 years, contributes in a unique way to understanding these unusual creatures found only in a couple of small territories in far north Queensland and Papua New Guinea. Karen finished her PhD on the animals in 2005. So when we first moved here, I actually couldn't believe that very little had been studied on tree roos. Why haven't we studied it to death? Well, the answer to that is they're really hard to study. Later we'll talk about why we might feel compelled to rescue animals and how to think about this kind of individually intensive work when we know it takes far more than personal action to make a positive difference in the face of global climate disruption. But before we get there, let's go for a stroll with another of Atherton's rescuers, Helen McConnell. Yeah, it's a complex, what they call a complex mesophyll rainforest that has epiphytes and it's evergreen and it has all different levels. It's very layered forest and a lot of species. Helen finds seeds in the rainforest and recognises and knows how to propagate 700 species, give or take. Well, at the moment, you know, it's not the busy time for seeds. You saw just back there, you mightn't have noticed, but I saw some flowers on the ground. So I know that that was a flindersia, which is a, one of the maples. Automatically that goes into my mind and I say, yes, they're flowering. So in a phenology record that I'd keep, I'd put that down as a open flower that I know that there's so many months on there would be seeds dropping here. She gives the seeds to the community nursery called Treat, or Trees for the Evelyn and Atherton Tablelands. The nursery propagates and shares the seedlings with anyone who wants to replant, as well as Queensland National Parks. So Helen's work with the nursery has been a frontline action in returning ruined land to potentially self-regenerating rainforest, habitat for those tree kangaroos and all their creaturely companions. 
Here we are, walking in a perfect circle around Lake Eacham, popular with locals and tourists, a volcanic crater lake fed only by soft rainwater and set in a fringe of unique rainforest. What is it about seeds that speak to you? Well, I guess I know what the outcome is. It's a new tree. I think we just should be planting more trees. And the seed is where you start. So I was volunteering up at the Queensland Parks and Wildlife and I just found that I had a passion for it and a knack. And then I started working for them because they could see that I was very dedicated and passionate about it. So I went collecting. Everything I would collect, I would go to the ends of the earth to find out what it was. It wasn't just when I finished work, it wasn't just a job, it was, it became a way of life. It's like a calling. And uh, when I walk through here, I just feel the throb of life, you know. The little birds are here, the wind coming in and sprinkling through the trees and I look over there and you can see a cauliflorus plant that's coming up. You can see that it's got buds on the trunk. It's absolutely beautiful, actually. They're only buds, so you can imagine when they pop out. So um, that will pop open. You'll have probably little pygmy possums or possums coming in at night and bats coming and, you know, all sorts of creatures will just enjoy this. (laughs) They'll just love it. They'll just be coming from everywhere to enjoy it. To do the job really well, you need to tune in to nature and tuning into what's happening and all the seasonal aspects of that too. The seasonal aspects makes me think about the geological aspects of this landscape. How they group rainforests, it's called regional ecosystems, which is like Webb and Tracy many years ago came and did the fluoristics. So they said, right, this is a lemon aspen, this is these trees. And they grow in basalt, which we're on now. This red soil is basalt. And we know it's 700 metres above sea level. And we know it rains here up to two and a half metres. A year. Yeah, so all of those aspects makes it this type of forest. Then when you go to another part, say if you go over towards Atherton on the Atherton Tableland, it's a bit drier. You'll still have the basalt and it's also semi-deciduous where this is evergreen. And so when we seed collect, we may know we're going to do some plantings in certain areas and we know that's like a 1B forest. So you know intrinsically which classification this bit of forest is? Yes. And you know what to do with their seeds? Yes. So how many trees do you think you've gathered seeds for that are now around here and planted? Oh, thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands maybe. Yeah, now I look at plantings that I know that I collected all those seeds for. And sort of they're my babies, my babies. (laughs) Look at all my babies growing up. And now they're being used by all sorts of creatures. You know, they're going to be there a lot longer than me. I feel like it's a privilege that I've been able to do this, you know, that... It's like nature looks after me because of it. 
Ooh, it's becoming really moody, isn't it, here? This mood, see, this is beautiful. The feeling of this rain coming in and the... Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. This is probably not good for your equipment. No, but I will. head back or...? Let's just hang here in the shelter. Well, the please. way it's been lately, it's just been off and on now. Yes, it's a beautiful sound and feeling, and you can feel it coming at you, can't you? Yeah. And you can see the wash of that, the lake coming in on the edge there. What I find interesting, actually, and Rhonda pointed out the other day to me, is in the rainforest there's very little shadow. It's a light without shadows. You've got a lot of tones, but, you know, like, you know, see on that pandanus, for instance, you've got that light that's hitting the top, whereas underneath you've got the darkness. It's time to see where Helen's seeds end up. I drive 30 kilometres south and 100 metres higher from Lake Eacham to Miller Miller. Angela McCaffrey, with her husband Mark, is the proud replanter of 33,000 seedlings on their own nature refuge. They're doing it to join two large remnant patches of forest and critically allow rainforest creatures, from insects to emus, tree kangaroos to smaller birds, to travel from the lower remnants up to the cooler slopes. Angela's also president of the nursery TREAT, or Trees for the Evelyn and Atherton Tablelands, formed back in 1982. It's very much a community organisation and it's not just about repairing the environment or getting people interested in the environment. It's also about community engagement and we have people that just come along on a Friday morning and pot up little seedlings or, or just bring a cake or something like that. And then we have other people who come to the plantings and plant in the rain and do all sorts of wonderful things. But it's just a fantastic organisation. I love it. So, do you fancy a little walk? Do I? Yes, I do. <laughs> okay. We set off down the hill to the creek, along a track passing through various stages of replantings. To me it all looks quite similar, but Angela knows the boundaries of each of her many stages of regeneration. So I'm sorry it's all a bit muddy, but um, it's been very wet, but um, we love it. We love the wet. <laughs> Soon we veer off into the undergrowth. Yes, I imagine this waist-height, knee-height grass grows... <laughs> Yeah, it does. In a week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This red, red soil, well, yeah. it's a sort of a reddy brown, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, this is basalt. It's very free-draining. We're on sort of Melanda Volcano, so it's a volcanic soil and it's beautiful to work with. Yeah, and the one thing that we love about this particular patch is that we have canopy closure over the road, which means that the arboreal mammals, all the different possums, tree kangaroos and things like that, they can actually climb from one side of the road over to the other without coming down to the ground. And some of the possums that we have never come to the ground. They live in the trees and that's that, so if there's a barrier, then they're stuck. So that closure over the roads is really important. So we're at about between 900 and, and 800 metres and then it goes up to about 1,100 or 1,200 metres at Mount Hypipami and, and the surrounds. There are quite a few different animals and birds 
They're probably plants as well that rely on these high altitude forests. They're refugia areas in times of when the climate has warmed in the past and presumably will be again in the future. But this particular corridor has always had in mind the fact that areas of forest that are disconnected means that the wildlife can't move to different cooling areas. And you're talking here not about long, hot, dry summers. Yeah, presumably global warming in the longer term. We know that some species will be lost, but especially the ones that live on top of mountains already. But hopefully other things will be able to move altitudinally up the range so that they can survive at a higher altitude than they, they were at before. Angela grew up in Wales, and like Karen, Rhonda and Helen, first came to the Tablelands as an adult. But for her, the seeds of attachment were planted in her chilly Welsh childhood. She became powerfully connected to an idea of a place she'd never set foot in. And when she got here in her 40s, she settled. You always see these wonderful coffee table books with pictures of frogs and orchids and birds and amazing colours and you know it just looks fantastic and so so I loved the idea of rainforest and jungle as you know they used to call it and I didn't really know an awful lot about it but I just loved looking at it and then I got an opportunity to do some travel in my 40s and during that trip I met Mark who eventually became a husband and then we did a trip around Australia and it was when we got to the Atherton Tablelands that we just decided oh you know, this is the place to be. So it was a real connection. Love at first sight of the forest. <laughs> Definitely. And standing on this soft soil yep. that you are responsible for, mm. every leaf that's <laughs> on this ground is because yeah. of you. Yeah, yeah. Enormously proud that, that we managed to do it. You know, you can see some little flowers here that are on the ground come off uh, something that's flowering up there, something we planted the best part of 10 years ago. Which means that yeah. they're coming from way up on the canopy. Yeah. You plant trees into a paddock and you have to maintain the weeds for three years till you get enough canopy coverage so that they control the weeds themselves. And in that process, so many changes take place. The soil changes, the covering on the soil changes, and, and nobody really prepares you for this. You just think, I'm planting trees. But so many things change. You know, the, the suite of birds that you have changes over time, from the generalists to the uh, rainforest specialists come in, and the insects and, and everything, the fungi and everything, it all finds its own way in. And you constantly see these changes. And even things that you absolutely love, you know, there might be a fabulous tree that you love and it falls down and, you know, you think, oh, that's so sad. But, you know, it's all just part of the way the forest works. It's my reason for existence is the, the gorgeous forest that, I, that I'm a part of, really. We're just guardians of it. And, you know, if anything, the... Uh, Indigenous people, it's their land, really. Once upon a time, this was all forested and rainforest people lived here and, and sustained it and lived off it without damaging it. And we're just trying to put it back. 
starting to rain. Quite a bit, yeah. yeah. A bit of a sprinkle. Yeah. You go through there. Oh, I just look. wanted to show you the beautiful creek. And the intact forest. I mean, it's just, it really is worth it. <laughs> the difference in colour and sound and feel. Yeah, yeah. It's a very beautiful experience. And, and we just know that in time, all this will become like that. So the edge of the jungle is <laughs> deeper green, the, the vines yeah. are thicker, the trees of course are taller and thicker. Yeah, and the shade, amazing shade. It's quite dark. Grey-headed robin. Nearby lives Elizabeth Carkery and she too is planting seedlings. With her husband Bruce, Elizabeth is a beef cattle farmer and her aim is to extend the reach of a small patch of original forest up into the various volcanic gullies of her property. She tracks a path in her off-road vehicle and on foot to and from her current gully project and then scrambles down to a secret world. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Elizabeth Carkery here. We are looking at a fantastic vista across the tablelands toward Atherton. It's actually raining at the moment. I'm sure you can hear that. <laughs> and um, we have lots of lovely green grass and some rainforest has not been felled. And we are fortunate to have original rainforest and we are not allowed to cut it down. Not that we want to. And on successive hills over, I'm revegetating the, the little valleys and gullies. Really? So beyond that, you're revegetating? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Why are you doing that? Well, my children think I'm a, a closet greenie in my old age, but I have stumbled upon the joys of watching trees grow, and our property needed a bit more tree cover, and we had already fenced off the gullies so the cattle didn't get in them, and I thought, wow great opportunity. I'll pop some trees in there, the cows aren't going to chew them and away we go. When you say that you've discovered in your later life the joys of growing trees, what do you mean and watching them well, grow? I've always been a bit of a gardener but only for flowers and perhaps the odd fruit tree but now I've discovered the joys of the rainforest tree and how important they are. I look upon them as my children so I can watch them grow because my actual children that I gave birth to have grown up and left home long ago. So I now have my other children that I can care for and fuss over. And when you started farming, what was this property like? Very uh, degraded, overstocked. And I suppose you'd say the environment and the property weren't looked after or loved. And I'd like to think that's what my husband Bruce and I have done, was show a little love to the property. You particularly have taken on the replanting. What about your husband? He's um, my assistant reluctantly because he does the, the fencing and the water piping, which you wouldn't think is necessary here in all this rain. But no, we have water pipes and taps and hoses and sprays and sprinklers. And that's and all down in the rainforest area? It is. Really? Yes. So why do you need to bring water to the rainforest? Well, occasionally it doesn't rain here, and usually in the latter part of the year, so I would say August at the end of winter through to even perhaps December. 
it's very dry and my little newly planted trees need a drink so that's when we go into action and crank up the water pump and the, the hoses and the pipes. The ground is saturated from the steady rain, so we drive the long way around to find Elizabeth's Gully. It's a tucked away spot, hard to tell it's there. Unless you stand near the edge, you can only see the tops of a few trees in a paddock. It doesn't look like much. But as we get closer, I realise the gully is 25 metres deep and the trees are just tall enough to put their canopy above the edge. So right. this is the beginning of your gully, which yes. is volcanic. Yes, it's all volcanic soil, which erodes very easily and needs to be stabilised. So that's basically what direction I'm heading in. I suppose I'm an environmental warrior in my own little way. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> that's the thing for fun. That to say. is well, well. I think I think we all should be, and we probably all are at heart. It's a matter of is the task too daunting, or too costly, or too much work. So we just start off in little little bursts. I think it seems a little easier, doesn't it? This isn't a small gesture. What no. you've done. Well, I'm glad you've looked at it from that point of view because yes, it is a big commitment on our part and our farm's part to regenerate and if that's what it takes, that's what it takes, isn't it? You have planted a little garden of Eden. It's I quite have. something. Yes, yeah. How do you enter it? With my gumboots and my, my mattock and my bucket of seedlings, away I go. So you climb down from here, yes. 25 metres, yes. staggering yes. down the staggering, hill. Staggering, yep. With your yep. bucket and yep. your mattock. Yes, definitely. That's me. And I enjoy getting lost here. If, if you're very quiet, you can see a platypus in a little pond down there and the odd tree kangaroo. So it makes it all worthwhile. Very rich. Mm. I'm, I'm quite pleased to show it to you, actually. I'm generally the only one that sees it. Returning to the town of Melander, I go to visit Peter Valentine, a former professor of earth and environmental science at James Cook University. Peter's spent the past 40 years in and around the wet tropics. Now he's settled here, on the edge of a reserve. We wander through his house onto the back patio set amongst the forest, with the always strange catbirds crying through the trees and he immediately shows me a little cluster of northern long-eared bats all tucked up and squashed together in his roof. Normally they would be in probably hollows in the rainforest trees, but here they're in a crevice in the roof of our patio. And how big are they? Well, they're quite tiny, but with a wingspan of maybe 15 centimetres. So they're rainforest hunters, so this evening they'll go out and catch mosquitoes and other insects all night. The birds are just flying in and amongst us. It's glorious. <laughs> and how many species do we know of in a square hectare of this place? Well, so in a hectare in our rainforest here, you might find maybe 100, 120 species of trees that are from a different species. In addition to the tree species, there's all those species that live on the trees. There's a few species that live adjacent to the trees and make their way to the canopy top. 
So the vines and creepers, the scramblers, they get to the canopy where they have to get to get light. And so there, the roots are there, but most of the plant is up in the canopy, as is true of most of the trees. Just recently, I was involved in launching a new guide to the fungi and mushrooms of the wet tropics. First time we've had any kind of guide to them. And the authors of that were plainly confident that we're only at the tip of an iceberg of understanding the fungi that live in our rainforest. So this guide has 109 species in it, a fraction of what is probably there. And if you go on a fungal foray in the rainforest, you're likely to encounter a species that's not even described. So now that's fungi. The soil microbia are very, very rich. Most of the biodiversity in the tropical rainforest will be in the soil. And that's something we know less about. So those organisms will not be well described by anyone. And this is one of our challenges when we're looking at long-term monitoring on rainforests. Because most of the wildlife is not so easy to see, it's not so easy to know when things are changing. And in the end, what we need for our communities are some kind of indicator species that people can see there's a change there. Maybe that means something. So there's a lot of meaning yet to be extracted from the climate change we're going through. On the Atherton tableland, rain is our on-again, off-again companion. 80 kilometres northwards, the little town of Karanda is on the Mariba tableland and the altitude drops 400 metres. When you cross the jump up between the two, geography plays with meteorology. Rhonda tells me that here, as the forest changes texture, the rain stops at the same point that it starts again on your return. We take the drive to meet some young people working hard on a millimetres-long problem, evocatively named the yellow crazy ant. It's not known where the ants originated, but they're ubiquitous now across Southeast Asia and the Pacific. They're in the top 100 worst invasive species rated by the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. They wipe out everything, up to the size of small mammals, in their path. So they get their name yellow crazy ants from their erratic behaviour, the way that they, there's like this crazy sort of movement about them. They really erratically move around and spread in all different directions. Michaela Jacobi was the first yellow crazy ant community task force coordinator in Karanda. So they don't actually bite, they spray a formic acid. So firstly, they essentially wipe out all of the soil dwelling, you know, invertebrae and insects living on the forest floor just by spraying their formic acid and the insect would die and then they, you know, feed on that as protein and they keep breeding and breeding and and eventually when they get up to big enough numbers they even go up into the canopy so they're starting affecting frogs, lizards, but like even birds that have just hatched. Even when they're up to big enough numbers, you know, small marsupials and, and the concern was household pets and things like that as well. So there is reports of where you could walk in to a rainforest environment and not see one lizard or one frog, not hear one bird. It's just really eerily silent. And that would be the fate of our, you know, wet tropics world heritage area if we don't do something about it. 
the whole Karanda community became involved in the fight and the Yellow Crazy Ant Task Force now works closely with the local Indigenous Boomba Rangers, a training program headed by Jimmy Richards and with him, Ranger Toby Graham. Right. So what are we looking at? We probably started here about two years ago. When we got here, all of this was basically guinea grass, wild raspberry, lantana. You couldn't get through it. So for the Yellow Crazy Ant team to be able to get through here and manage it properly and lay their baits and do what they call quantitative luring, we had to cut paths through it. So do you still have Yellow Crazy Ants here? No, I think they've I think they've pretty much knocked them on the head here, but they have been finding them in a couple of other places. But it's always still monitored, as I said before, late last year we walked that whole side. In another month or two we'll we'll walk this whole side and we'll see what we can find. We found nothing when we walked that, so we're hoping we can find nothing on this side. But with all the, the rain and it's washed a lot of things down, so we're more concentrating on down the bottom of the Barren River. I'm Toby Graham, I'm one of ten rangers, Boomba rangers up here in Karanda. Lucky enough to work on the, with a lot of Jabagai locals as well. Jabagai are the traditional owners of this area. We've got some awesome young indigenous rangers that all are from here and everyone's really, they love looking after their own land. I'm Jimmy Richards, range coordinator for Boomba rangers, Karanda, Jabagai. The young rangers themselves, I think the youngest is 20, and about three weeks ago we had all ranger groups from all over Queensland come up for a conference, and we took them out for a day out to one of our sites. You couldn't get boo out of the rangers before that, but the young rangers themselves actually did the presentation, so it was the first time they spoke in public and, and they spoke with confidence. Michaela was working in biosecurity with the Wet Tropics Management Authority on a large yellow crazy ant infestation south of Cairns. When she first heard about this new invasion, so much closer to home. So just a few doors up is one of the neighbours, Rob Richardson. He is a lovely guy and just very observant and he was the one who noticed these ants that were something that he had never seen before and so he reported it and it went from there and for me it was absolutely devastating because I have a real attachment to this space this landscape this place and a sense of belonging to it as well and so for me I was running around like a crazy ant (laughs) I was like oh my gosh this can't be happening you know (laughs) and I sort of came down the driveway, came down the street and I was pulling up rocks and looking under different vegetation and different bits of pot plants and things around the garden and just noticing that these ants had already made themselves at home in our home. Yeah, and then it was actually only a few months after that that they continued to spread and they were on the other side of our house here. So it was something of great concern and something to act on as quickly as possible. So we've got one of the top 100 worst invasive species in the world sharing space with a critically endangered tree frog that's not found anywhere else in the world, anywhere else in the wet tropics, but Myola, this area. And how did your heart feel when you... 
yeah, I just thought we need to do something about this now when you've actually been living with them, when they're falling out of, you know, when they're breeding in your roof cavity, when they're over your kitchen bench every day, when they're in your bed, when they're just in your space constantly. There is no way you can even imagine what that's like unless you've lived with that. So I decided to um, engage the community a little bit and I did that alongside Karanda EnviroCare to see if there would be a keen interest from the community to become involved in eradicating the yellow crazy ants. And what did you find? We had about 100 volunteers sign up within a few weeks. You know, I don't know, I've never had anything against ants and I still would see them as these characters and I just find ants to be so fascinating but I was just like but you're not meant to be here so it was kind of like sorry you guys but you gotta go yeah. Rescue and restoration is not just about keeping animals alive and growing trees it's also in this instance about killing and the killing needs to be absolute not an ant can be left behind. Their small size and their propensity to form super colonies makes them very difficult to control, particularly in flood-prone areas like the wet tropics. So poison pellets are distributed by humans and they're taken back by worker ants to the queen. And that means sacrifices have to be made. Other insects might also take the bait. There's no other option, like it's either you get rid of the yellow crazy ants in a way that you know is effective or you allow them to kill everything else. So there wouldn't be any other native ants left. There wouldn't be any insects and invertebrate left in our soils if we would let those ants get out of hand. So what we were hoping was that with a decline in yellow crazy ant numbers that they would recolonate back. I can really happily say that we're actually seeing that now. This rural community has elastic, porous boundaries. Knowledge is shared from within and without. Research, teaching and learning ebbs and flows geographically and also temporally as residents come to understand this place, pass knowledge through the generations and across communities to help their home ground restore itself. Sylvia Conway followed Michaela as Community Task Force Coordinator. Years ago, when I was running the tree planting project with Karanda EnviroCare, we had a nursery knowledge exchange weekend all the way from the Cassowary Coast up to Mossman Port Douglas, and it was really amazing. It was like we all were sharing our knowledge. We all got to go to each other's nurseries and re-veg patches and, and check out what the other people were doing, and there was no secrets then. There's no, like, fences saying, this is our information, and we're really all happy to share it someone's already done step one, two, three, and then you can take off and just do four, five. You know, we stand on the shoulders of those who have done the hard work and have committed themselves beforehand. you combining Western science with um, traditional knowledge. It's for one outcome, and that's the environment, so that's a great outcome. Rhonda and I return to Melanda along the black ribbon of the two-lane road. On cue, as we ascend the jump up, the road slickens with light rain and our hire car headlights are weak and dangerous as total darkness falls. The next day, Rhonda takes me to meet Ernie Raymond, a traditional owner of the area, and I ask him what it means to him to have the tree kangaroo as his totem. He's not a totem to me, he's my countryman. To me, he's just a living thing. 
we don't call them totem, we call them countrymen. So under tribal law, I cannot eat a muppy, because that's eating my countrymen. And so I'm not allowed to eat. I can eat somebody else's totem, but I can't eat my own. The law, you know, the tribal law is very strict about things like that. So by having that law in place, it maintains that balance in the rainforest, you know, by having that balance, yes. So a muppy is the traditional name for the tree kangaroo? Yes, yes. To spend time here, what was that like for you? And to just be in amongst the forest and the, and the oh, trees? You know, you know, we class ourselves as rainforest people. And, you know, so the rainforest is part of us and, um, you know, and we are part of the rainforest. Uh, you can't separate us. Our people, you know, lived in the rainforest. Everything that Mother Nature provided for our people... And so our people respected the rainforest. It's part of me and I'm part of it because we are rainforest people. When you grew up, how much of this did your parents and your grandparents share with you? Uh, very little, very little. I only picked it up by um, just staying around the camps and that, and when the old people were talking, you know, sometimes they talk to themselves and that, you know, that sort of thing. As soon as they hear us kids walking around, they revert back to English. So, you know... You know, our grandmother and grandfather, you know, they can talk the language, they knew the spirits and everything, you know. But um, at that time, if you caught uh, talking about uh, Aboriginal culture, if the police found out about that, they could remove you to the mission. So this is what the old people were very afraid of, getting removed from country. Because nine times out of ten, when they sent them away to the mission station, you know, like Yarrabah or Palm Island or Sherbrooke, all those places, they were never allowed to return to their country. So they said that the culture is lost. And some of the people, my old people, you know, they, um, they, they wasn't game to talk to, and tell us about that. But I used to just listen to them, you know, talk, and, you know, that's how I picked it up. And some other time I've read books about and that's how I picked it up too as well. You know, early explorers that came up here. The tree kangaroo is your countryman. Yes. When you see one, how do you communicate with it? Them old people can communicate, talk that language, and so we understand. I can't do that. I don't know the language and how to speak to it, muppy. But I just say, hello, countryman, how are you? And that's it, you know, because I don't hang around too close. I'm just, you know, say hello and that's it and keep on moving. But I think they know me. You know, animal, you know, their senses, you know, extraordinary, put it that way. How do you think they know you? Well, I think by my voice. And I'm not a danger to them. You know, animals can pick up something, you know, from a person because, um, you know, the smell coming from your body. And uh, they're really relaxed. So that's how they, um, you know, I respect them, sing out to them, and that's it. Here you are. Do you want to take my arm? Yeah. Let's go back to the rescue centre now because the tree roos are in trouble. Karen Coombe's painstaking work, her closeness to the animals, has led her to the realisation there's a serious medical issue affecting the roos she rescues as they cross out of the rainforest and intersect with the edge where the people are. These are resilient creatures and can live in trees around farms and gardens in the rural zone if there's enough to eat. But lately they've been found blundering around in places they should not be the middle of empty paddocks, up poles and inside sheds. 
Literally and figuratively, the tree kangaroos are getting lost. Elizabeth Carkery found one on her farm. Six months ago, we had one hippity-hoppity about and um, unfortunately, we could tell that something was quite wrong with it. So we, we caught it and I phoned the tree rescue people and they came along and said that um, the poor little thing was blind. And it, yeah, and it just didn't look right to you, the no, way it was it moving didn't. around. we could see it bumping into things and it just would sit on the lawn and look around, well, move its head around as, as if to say, well, it had no idea where it was going or which direction to travel in. So the last seven years we've had an increase in blind animals and we really do believe that it's climate triggered. How is that? Well, the last seven years has been, the climate's definitely been really increasingly changing. So we've had almost a drought up here in the tropics. And the Tablelands usually gets nine to ten months of rain a year. And we've been getting, for example, last winter we got no rain. And that has been correlating quite strongly with these blind animals. Correlating is different from causing though, isn't it? It's just that that correlation is so strong that we think that it may be a causal action Mm. or it's at least causing the animal stress enough for them to get sick. So we have eliminated some of the really famous diseases. It's definitely not a thing called toxoplasmosis because that's a progressive disease and usually kills them. I've been working with a veterinary ophthalmologist called Dr Tony Reid from Adelaide for the last seven years and for the last 12 months with a veterinary pathologist from Charles Sturt University. So we know to a level what's going on and uh, we just need to prove it. So what's happening is that when they've got that optic nerve and frontal lobe brain damage, they've got less focus. So they can see, and I always say, enough to get into trouble. So they get lost. But it's a very subtle behavioural things. Later I speak to the vet researcher who's been receiving Karen's tree kangaroo brains and eyes. Andrew Peters from Charles Sturt University confirmed the blindness as a kind of viral infection and that these can occur as a result of stress from environmental change. What does caring for the tree kangaroos mean to you? Knowing that, you know, change is coming and it's coming faster and faster. Well, I think this work's important because if I wasn't rescuing the individuals, we wouldn't be finding out things like the blindness. I mean, that that could have been missed really easily. In fact, I nearly did miss it. I was rescuing for a long time before I realised that I thought they were blind. And it was really interesting. Someone once said to me that individuals aren't important, that we should be concentrating on populations. My answer to that is it's um, individuals are extremely important and it's important not only to that individual but we learn so much from each and every one of them. So keeping your emotional distance is out of the question here. You can't do this and not get emotionally affected or what's the word I'm thinking of? You know, to be just... you're, You're just totally... When I say dedicated, but you're 100% in there and you know that if you don't put that 100% towards saving these animals, then it, it just isn't enough. When you farewell a tree kangaroo, then how do you let go? That's a tough question. The letting go part's very, very difficult. But once the animals reach a certain age, they can be quite 
aggressive. Basically, they're telling you they're ready to go. And it is extremely difficult. It's so hard to almost compare it to um, you would be taking your teenager into a city and going, see you later, you're on your own. It feels like a big chunk of my heart goes with them. And I worry about them for a very long time. Do you cry? Oh, yeah, of course I do. I wouldn't be human if I didn't. What about that other difficult time and that's when one dies? Oh, yeah, that's hard, yeah. But and the same thing is that I also learn a hell of a lot from every single death and then that helps me look after the next one. So there is anxiety in this work and psychological distress. With climate disruption, climate catastrophe, a shadow cast over the shoulder, there is a reciprocity in doing what can be done for your home ground, for your region, for your planet. There is personal comfort to be found in taking local action. A reward for the work is direct immersion in and connection with your immediate ecosystem, the trees, the animals, the insects, the soil. For all our Atherton land, water and animal carers, there's an anxiety but also a certainty that the only way to deal with the fear of climate crisis is to tackle it one kangaroo, one rainforest tree, one yellow crazy ant at a time. And with that work comes an informed and participating community making democratic choices and taking democratic action. So for me, I believe that the earth doesn't really need fixing it, it's humankind. And I grew up, I was quite a free-range child. We grew up in the bush, so there was never any separation for me from actually caring for this beautiful planet that's actually supporting us unconditionally every day in every way. So, Do you still feel that the Earth will be fine without us? How do you feel about that sixth great extinction? When I was younger, I was felt quite desperate about the Earth's state and what is happening in the world, this quite doom and gloom sort of perception. And to be honest with you, that is fading for me and I have a lot of hope and I just, in all the work that I'm doing, I'm surrounded by people that care. And in my community, in my circles, there is a huge shift of consciousness happening in our communities, in our environment, in our world. That's where the young rangers, where the pride has come out because they're helping to get rid of something on their own traditional country. And you know, they want to get out and do this work. The hard yakka they did just cleaning this area here and other areas itself, you know, like that's hard work. And you know, I think they're proud to see what they've achieved in their own country, you know, they're actually encouraging their, their traditional country to uh, recover. All the species I know and love from personal encounter, and for me, the very idea that those species might not survive is appalling. I take it personally. It's transformed me a little bit. I've become much more ardently vocal in terms of the need for climate change action. I have thought a lot about it and I've now come to the conclusion that 
we all of us have this living connection to every organism that's ever lived on the planet. So yes, we're all progeny from cyanobacteria that that were the first climate change species in the world and created the world we can live in, thanks cyanobacteria. But they are me. I come from, we all come from cyanobacteria far enough back. So I have this living connection through my parents and go back through the tree of life and here we are. There's not a break between you and me and those cyanobacteria. Every biological organism in the world is your relation. You are connected to it. So how then can you feel that it doesn't matter that species X or Y vanish? You can't just say what's the point. We can do something and I think the thing that is scary to people is they go, oh, well, if I do something, what's the point? Why should I have to do something when nobody else is doing it? I feel I'm making a change for tree kangaroos, and I'm one person. If every person did just one little thing, it would help. Let's get rid of plastics. Let's not use straws. Let's recycle stuff. Don't overbuy your food when you go shopping. Plant a tree. If you can't plant a tree, adopt a tree kangaroo. If you can't afford to do that, volunteer your time. You've got to think globally and act locally too, and that's what's made me feel, oh, well, I know it's a drop in the ocean, but it's where we're living and it's creating some source of importance to the people, to the animals, to the to the land. So in that way, it's meaningful. When you think about other places that are in trouble, you've known this place very well. What do you think about with those other places? I've seen things on, say, maybe the news or that, and it will... I'll, I, I can't help but cry and be... And, and yeah, this really overwhelms me, actually. Sorry. I get a real, um, yeah, I feel a bit silly, but I feel, I, I, I just feel, I wish I could do something, or at times I've, um, I've actually applied to go to other countries to maybe set up nurseries with even, you know, because you can do so much just with very crude things, you don't have to have a an expensive nursery or, you know, you can do... It's so easy. Like, the, the, the seeds want to grow. It's an easy thing. You don't have to, you know, have these fancy nurseries or whatever. You just have to have someone and a group of people that, are, that will be there to help them along. I just look at it at its future because I know that the plantings that we've planted are heading on a trajectory that will take them into becoming natural forest. You know, that fills me with great joy. And it's just part of my life, you know, it's just... That's a beautiful little fungus. Oh, yes, yes. Don't know the name of it, I'm afraid, but, um, you know, I guess that also with things you don't always have to know the name. <laughs> no, you don't. When I was at school, we weren't taught or made aware that 
the environment was important. It was like, well, there's a tree over there, chop it down, use the timber kind of thing. Whereas now it's, oh, there's a tree there, plant some more and make an ecosystem, save the bilbies, all that kind of thing. And, and I think that's what I would say is the biggest change in my life. And as the younger generation comes along, their opinions shape what the old ones do, I think. And that's all we can hope for, isn't it? I like your picture of hope. That's really good. <laughs> well, you've got to have it. Otherwise, you don't carry on, do you? You've got to have some hope and some belief and not necessarily faith, but a little hope for the future. The climate is changing and what we can do to help save it, well, I'm trying. One tree at a time. It's that simple. Get on board and get with it. The Rescue Project in the Atherton Tablelands was produced and presented by me, Gretchen Miller. And big thanks to the people of the Tablelands, to land and animal carers everywhere, but in particular Rhonda Sorensen and James Link, as well as to Judy Motion, Paul Brown, Temma Milstein and Matt Kins from the University of New South Wales, which has supported this research. Thanks also to Judy Rapley for sound engineering. More details are on the Rescue Project website and your podcast provider. Do spread the word, share us, like us and drop us a line or indeed your story at landcareaustralia.org.au slash rescue. We'd just love to hear from you. The Climactic Collective. Collective.